I want to begin this morning with a bit of a tricky question, and the tricky question is, should we judge Jesus? Is it right, is it fitting for us to judge Jesus? It's a tricky question because in one sense the answer is absolutely no, and in another sense it might actually be yes. For starters, I want to say it's crazy to judge Jesus. The sermon title today would be The Madness of Judging Jesus. That's because I'm a Christian, and I look at things from a Christian perspective. I know enough about the Bible. I know enough about history. I know enough about Christianity to say, we have no business sitting in judgment of Jesus. As a matter of fact, he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. If anybody's going to do any judging, it won't be us judging him. It'll be him judging us. And so it's so crazy when people sit in judgment thinking somehow they're the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and, and they're here to evaluate Jesus. Absolute madness. But there's another sense in which we should judge Jesus. Here's what I mean. Some guy just shows up out of nowhere, sight unseen, and says, I am the long-anticipated, long-awaited one. I am the Deliverer, Messiah, Christ. I am the one who came to save His people from their sins, as all the prophets said. And everybody said, okay. That wouldn't make any sense. What would make sense is, hear the claims, look, observe, discern, does he objectively meet the qualifications? Or does he just speak empty words? Does he actually show that he has the power that he's supposed to have? Does he actually objectively, historically show that he has the authority that he's supposed to have? Is he really the one that matches the long, uh, long before prophesied Messiah? In that sense, it would be appropriate. Well, we're studying the gospel according to Luke. We're in the 11th chapter. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. And one thing that Luke sets out to do, his primary purpose is to give the historical evidence, to give the objective facts, to, to write as a historian, to gather, to collect the data according to chapter 1, to present a valid, credible historical account for a dignitary uh, perhaps a friend as well, to lay out the objective, again, historical evidence so that we can know that he really is the one. He's not just an empty professor of words. And Luke doesn't take very long at all to, to heap evidence upon evidence upon evidence. It doesn't take very long at all to figure out and to connect the dots. He, he, he actually matches the description not just empty speaker. He's trustworthy. And so you should trust in Him as your deliverer, your Messiah, your King, your Savior, the one who would come to save His people from their sins. And by the time we get to chapter 11, which is where we are now, it would be mad to reject Him as Messiah. It would be mad as in crazy. People who are mad are people who ignore the facts. If you live in denial of the facts in enough areas of your life, you'll be considered a crazy person. You'll be considered a mad person. And now, objectively, before their very eyes, 
time and time and time again, he's showing that he matches the description. And to have them then sit in judgment of him, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the judge, is maddening. It's crazy. It's lunacy. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Luke chapter 11, we'll look at verses 14 to 28. We'll look at the spiritual madness of judging Jesus, the proven one, and we'll look at it in four parts. Okay, Four parts that can show us it's absolutely mad for these people to sit in judgment of Jesus because he's the proven one and they know it. So first part in seeing the foolishness of judging Jesus uh, would be the demonstration of it, the demonstration of it. Just to point out the obvious before we read the first verse, this is just kind of sort of relevant. Understatement, understatement, understatement. You say, what does this have to do with my life? Um, has a lot to do with your life. Is he really the proven one or isn't he? Who's crazy? You? For believing he's the proven one? Or... Someone who sees him for who he is, observes his power and his authority, and says, I'll evaluate him. Who's, who's mad? I hope what happens if you're a Christian is this, this encourages you, that you're not the crazy one. Uh, if you're, you're not a Christian, I hope it confronts you. Um, if you're a Christian, I hope it helps you to see that this is not a new thing to see Jesus objectively, historically, and reject him. That ultimately, it's not an intellectual problem. Ultimately, it's a spiritual problem. It's a problem of the heart. And I hope it helps equip you as you engage people that you love and care about and you want to tell them about Christ and who he is and what he's done, that you can uh, do so perhaps with a bit more clarity, uh, a little bit more boldness, Maybe more compassion. Hope that happens. The demonstration of the spiritual madness of judging Jesus, the proven one. Number one, beginning in verse 14. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. A couple of observations would be he doesn't just say he can do this. He does this to the point where unbelievers, doesn't say they believed, but they marvel. They, they can't get around the fact that this guy had a problem, verifiable problem that they were aware of, and now he doesn't have the problem anymore. How did that happen? And so they're marveling. Wow, amazing. What's going on here? Now, verse 15 says, but some of them, some of the marvelers in our context, some of, some of those who are marveling said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, other marvelers, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So, two conclusions by, by this particular group of people. He gets this power from Demonic forces. He's demon-empowered. Because how else could you do what he did? They're supernaturalists. They're not naturalists. And they say, well, how else can we explain this? What well, can't be done otherwise. He has supernatural power. He has the power of the devil. Beelzebul, prince of the demons. That's how he did it. 
And others don't want to be quite so hardline about it. And they're going to say, we see what he's done. It's amazing. It's marvelous. We can't do it. We can't explain it. And so what we need are more signs. Show us a sign, Jesus. As if he hadn't just done that. As if he hadn't been doing this all along, right? He's been doing marvelous things throughout. They can't notice they don't deny the, the existence of Jesus, just to point out the obvious. Uh, they don't deny the reality of what he's done and that, it, that it's extraordinary. But joining the history of unbelief, you know, don't confuse me with the facts, I know what I believe. Joining the history of unbelief, they have to come up with another explanation or at least try to buy time and claim to be agnostic about it. But based upon everything that's happened so far in Luke's account, I have to say they're being irrational. It's, it's irrational to see Jesus do what he does and say, that's demonic. Jesus is going to show how irrational that is. Or basically to say, um, we, we're going to pretend like we didn't see anything, but it has our interest. Jesus, why don't you do something that might be heavenly? Who are the crazy people? The people who see it and embrace him for who he professes to be? I don't think so. Number two, the second part of seeing the foolishness of judging Jesus is the exposure of it, the exposure of it, the, the expose. Jesus is going to expose the craziness of what they're saying. Verse 17 says, But he, speaking about Jesus, knowing their thoughts, just keep your finger there for a second and think irony. Show us a sign, Jesus. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. It's common knowledge. Verse 18, And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. You following him or not? He's being rational. He's being very logical. You say, I do this by the power of the devil. Now, let's just talk about power. Let's just talk about how things get accomplished. They don't get accomplished by division. If you're going to be strong and powerful, you're united and you do something together to be strong and powerful. So, your critical evaluation of me doesn't even make sense. I cast out a demon and you say, I'm empowered by the demonic. That's, that's mad. That, that's illogical. That's irrational because then I would be against myself. You know, you know, Satan is bad, but Satan isn't stupid, which is more than Jesus can say about them. You see? They're going to great lengths to justify their rejection of Jesus as people do and Jesus exposes the ridiculousness of their argument. But it doesn't stop there. <laughs> As we approach verse 19, I'll just interject. Oh, and by the way, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, 
By whom do your sons cast them out? Jesus is, is he's calling them out. He's calling them out for their inconsistency. Jesus is using their own kind of argument against them. According to Acts 19, to choose one passage, the Jews had exorcists. Whether they did real exorcism or not, we could talk about that. We're not going to. It had been done before. And they would claim to have exorcists. And he says, all right, let me just take your logic and let me just turn the argument on you. Jesus is masterful at doing this. We could probably get better at doing this as Christians. Let me just take the rationality of your argument, let me spin it and turn it back on you. You evaluate me this way, I'm going to evaluate you this way. Where do your sons, where do those who belong to you, is what he's saying, get their power then? Are you willing to acknowledge that all power to exercise demons comes from demons? Are you willing to acknowledge that your own people are demon-possessed? Didn't think so. Didn't think so. Verse 19 then says, Therefore, they will be your judges. In other words, your own will condemn you then. Your own arguments expose you. I wish I were better at doing this. <laughs> Maybe the Lord doesn't allow it because it would just make me more spiritually prideful than I am. But I wish in a good and humble way I was good at this. I want to be good at this. I want you to be good at this. I, I want you to, be, to, 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 to know your Bibles well enough, to be able to grow in Christian maturity enough, to be able to, to not panic when someone launches a criticism at you for belonging to Christ. You know, take a breath. Calm down, think about it, pray. And actually, more times than not, you can use the same argument that's used against you, against them. And at least show them the futility of their argument. It doesn't make them a Christian. It doesn't mean their heart's changed. But hopefully at least shows them that they aren't as smart as they think they are. We talk about this when we talk about apologetics and defending the faith. And I better keep going. <laughs> Let's go to number three, a third part in seeing the foolishness of judging Jesus. The sane alternative to it. Number three, the sane alternative to it. And we're going to see the sane alternative to it is, is trusting him. Trusting him. Look at verse 20 with me if you would. But if it is by the finger of God, and what do you think that means? If it's by the finger of God, if it's by the power of God, maybe reminiscent of the giving of the law that came directly from God to Moses. Maybe Jesus is using that kind of verbiage because it'll really resonate with his audience. They're Jewish people in this context. But if... 
It is by the finger of God. If, if I do these things by the power of God, by, by, by the, the authority of God, and if it's by the finger of God in that, in that mosaic, mosaic law sense, by the direct revelation of God, not by secondary means, secondary causes, not according to providence, but directly from God, I think is what he's getting at. But if it is by the finger of God, direct, directly from God, then let's keep going, that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. All along, Jesus is claiming to be the king. Okay? So when he says, the kingdom of God has come upon you, well, well, now also, well, he's getting at the fact that I'm the one. And again, remember some basic things, especially if you're newer to the Bible. Remember, if Jesus is... Christ, Christ is the New Testament Greek word, which is the same exact and translated word in the Old Testament, Messiah, Mashiach. So if, follow me here, if you have an, a Greek version of the Old Testament, for you scholars, it's called Septuagint. If you have a Greek version of the Old Testament, wherever the Old Testament in Hebrew said Mashiach, Messiah, the Greek version of the Old Testament says Christ. So every time you read it, you know, we like to say Jesus' last name is not Christ, okay? In the New Testament, Christ, every time you see it, it's Messiah, which means, in a wooden sense, it means anointed one. But in its official sense, anointed one as in a king is anointed in an official ceremony where they're acknowledged to be the one, okay? So here when Jesus says, if this is by the power of God, then the kingdom of God is here. In other words... I'm the king. In other words, the one that the Old Testament had been talking about and the people of God had been waiting for and the prophets had spoken about who would come and deliver and free the people and bring reconciliation, not only uh, and bring reconciliation and restoration. I'm the one. I'm the one. It would be logical, rational, biblical to conclude that I'm the one. That's what he's getting at. I'm the son of David. As in, he was the anointed one. He was a type of Christ in anticipation, but he failed and he died and he can't be the one long ago promised who would rule and reign forever. So he's saying, I am, to borrow from elsewhere in the New Testament, I am the son of David. Like 2 Samuel chapter 7 says. And, and, and he's, he's making it clear to them. He's not in any way, shape, or form saying, don't confuse me with the facts. I know what I believe. He's saying that to them. He's saying that to them. He's the long-awaited one. He's the fulfillment of the promises. He's the bringer of deliverance. He's the one who's altogether righteous. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And there's a right response to that guy. And... You're not giving it. Then we have an illustration. An illustration comes in verse 21. Pretty straightforward. We'll go ahead and read it. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. If you remove that from the flow of things, you'll say, I have no idea what he's talking about. It's a truism. But in our context, we know what he's talking about. 
it would seem that in the context of demon exorcism, strong man would be Satan. But when one comes who's stronger and defeats him, who's greater, who's more powerful, who's in charge, I think Jesus is the stronger man. And now all of a sudden we have to put our biblical theology into play and we think in terms of a bigger picture. John chapter 12, I think it is. Satan is called the ruler of this world. And now let's really start putting some pieces together and think in terms, okay, Jesus um, in 1 Corinthians is called the last Adam. Now let's go back to Genesis in our minds and start putting the pieces together and realize that Adam was assigned by God a responsibility, among other things, to rule creation, to rule and reign for the honor of the king, of, for, for, for the honor of God. Adam was given that responsibility. He was to guard and be in charge, and he doesn't. Satan is then given this title, ruler of this world. And now we have the last Adam doing what the first Adam failed to do, dethroning Satan. And he will be the one who rules and reigns as the ultimate Messiah, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's none other than Jesus defeating the strong man. He's the one. He's the one. Victorious, long expected, representative of the human race who will defeat Satan. And here we see it spoken of. So what's Jesus going to say next? We might think, next Jesus is going to say, at least see me as a viable option. I at least deserve a seat at the table amongst the many great religions of the world. At least see me as rational. I, I score an A-plus in logic. At least see me as an option. We might think he would do that. But if he's the king of kings, if he's the long-expected Messiah, deliverer, reconciler, actually, that wouldn't be logical. That wouldn't be logical. So brace yourself for this one. The fourth part of seeing the foolishness of judging Jesus, the proven one. Number four, the qualifiers to it. There are several qualifiers. The qualifiers to it. This is to keep us on task, to not draw our own conclusions, because right now we're just ready to draw our own conclusions. So he's going to give qualifiers. One qualifier is there's no such thing as neutrality. Look at verse 23 there and notice. Whoever is not with me is against me. He probably didn't say it with a chuckle in his voice like I just did. Whoever is not with me is against me. No neutrality. No neutrality. If I really am the one who conquers the strong man, if I really am the one who has this power that's been objectively shown in real time and real space, guess what? It would be irrational for me to say I'm a way. It wouldn't even make sense. 
God didn't promise that long ago beforehand. There is going to be one who will be the deliverer, the trustworthy one to whom all others, uh, others would be pointing. And he says, guess what? If you're not, what does he say? With me, you're against me. Given the absolutely objective nature of his power, authority, actions, argument, pretty straightforward. Now, if, if, if that's not where you're coming from today and you think, I, I don't really like the sound of that, what translation is that? I mean, in all seriousness and all sincerity, if, if you're feeling the rub and thinking, I, that doesn't really settle very well with me. Well, you can view Jesus as mean and nasty or you can view him as a truth teller. And he has a really good track record of doing that. He's telling the truth. It's good that he would say, you're either for me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. I've shown myself to be who I am, and so you'll either look at me and embrace me, which is sane, or you'll say, no. But having seen the evidence, if you will, it's not a legitimate place to say, well, I don't know. It's extreme. Verse 23 then goes on to say, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Borrowing from agriculture are you gathering, which would be productive, or are you scattering, making a mess of things, which would not be productive? It's pretty interesting that he says that, don't you think? If you don't gather with me, you scatter. Now, again, in our context, I think the best we can make of that and understanding that would be to believe that if you don't gather, you scatter. <laughs> if you really see me for who I am, that I'm the good one, the promised one, the one who delivers, the one who brings good news of reconciliation, if you really see me for who I really am, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when it comes to other people? Well, I don't really know. I'm a Christian, but, you know, just whatever, whatever works for you. I think that's what he's getting at. That won't be true of you, and it won't be true of me. If you're not for him, you're against him. And if you're not gathering, you're scattering. So I sit down with you, and I can have a discussion with you, and I'm going to do one of two things when it comes to the name of Christ in Christianity. I'm either in gathering mode. Now, I can't change your heart. I can't convert you. But I'm either in gathering mode because I'm a Christian. I belong to Christ. I've tasted. You know, I, like the old saying goes, I'm a beggar that knows where to find food. 
If that's really true and really genuine, I really see Jesus for, for who he is, then, then I've got, out of love for you, I'm not neutral. I'm telling you about where to find food. I'm telling you where to find reconciliation. I'm trying to, 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 to help you understand where you can have relief from your guilt and your issues. And your biggest issue, which would be God. I like the passage because it, it, it pushes us. There's no agnostic position, at least not in a, a long-term sense. Sure, we might say, I don't know anything about Christianity. Well, don't just believe anything about Christ because we say. You, you need to know the data. But to have the data and to see it for what it is and say, well, I just don't know, so I'm safe. And Jesus says, no, you're either for me or you're against me. You're either a gatherer or a scatterer. Kind of pushes us a little bit. That's not very PC. But if you're the king of kings and lord of lords, you're not very PC. If you're the long-expected, long-awaited deliverer one who is the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, you're not PC, by definition. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And again, if you find yourself in that position saying, you know, I... I you're offending me because I would consider myself an agnostic. Just know that Jesus is gracious and loving and kind enough to say it's not a viable position to stay in. That's all. Now another qualifier. Another qualifier would be that benefiting from Jesus is not the same as trusting in him. Benefiting from Jesus is not the same as trusting in him. Look at verse 24 with me, if you would. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Now, we saw an account where water was involved and demons were involved, and we're not going to go back there and exactly why this is the case. I have no idea. I don't think anybody else does either. But that's what he says, so it's not the point. We're going to keep moving. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. When it goes and brings seven other, then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. I think that's a qualifier he gives to make the point that benefiting from Jesus is not the same as trusting in him. And if you only benefit, don't think that it's going to be a long-term good thing for you if you come short of trusting in him, depending upon him, believing in him, resting in him is what I'm getting at. See why I would say that when you look at the passage? Demon gets removed, gone for a spell. What's the demon do? Calls for a party. 
sends a group text to all of his friends. Got a clean house. We'll go there. It's going to be worse than it was before. I think Jesus gives that as a qualifier. They're benefiting from Jesus. Obviously, the man that had the demon cast out is benefiting. Other people are benefiting too. I mean, think about this. When people tell the truth, there's benefit. And Jesus is calling for more than enjoying a benefit. He's calling, in other words, for trust. You trust in me. There's only one real solution here. It's not enough just to benefit from me. Now, extrapolating by way of application in a broader sense, I think there's something to be learned from that. Many people benefit from the teachings of Jesus. Many people benefit from Christian morality. In one sense, everyone in this room has. Biblical principles to follow that help us on a personal, immediate level, on a broader cultural level. I think that's true. But we need to know that if we can apply this passage in a broader sense, I think we can, carefully. It's dangerous. It's dangerous if you stop there. See the benefits, see the goodness and say, I'm going to trust in Jesus as Savior, as King, as Messiah. That's what it's meant to do. But don't think for a second that you can just have a better life and it's ultimately going to be better for you because Jesus is saying it's ultimately going to be worse for you. I mean, think about people who follow biblical principles and get their life cleaned up. And don't trust in Christ. It's not better for them in the long run. Why? Now so they can be self-righteous? Because I follow biblical principles and I did this. and I, or, or whatever the matter might be. All of this is designed to have us see Jesus for who He is and trust in Him. Because otherwise, it's actually going to be worse. And I, 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 in all earnestness, say that's very relevant to us. You know people, I know people, probably some of you in this room are benefiters from Christ in a general sense. But you have a Christian spouse involved in a Christian church, Christian morality. doesn't mean you're a Christian. doesn't mean it's going to be better for you. What will be better is to see those fruits and then to see where it comes from and to acknowledge Him for who He is. And then you're safe in all the best senses. Let's move on. One more qualifier. One more qualifier. I'll state it this way before we read the last verse. Reasonable conclusions about Jesus are not the same as trusting in Him. Reasonable conclusions about Jesus are not the same as trusting in Him. Fascinating verse, verse 27. 
And he said these things. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. I said it was the last verse, second to the last verse. Blessed or blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. There is a case of a reasonable conclusion, isn't it? That's a decent conclusion. It's decent enough that Luke actually starts the gospel account off speaking kind of similar terms or recording similar terms. I mean, when you see Jesus and he talks the way he talks and he does the things that he does, what do you conclude if you're being reasonable? Here, this woman says, I'm going to be rational. I'm going to make a conclusion. My conclusion is, blessed is your mother to be adored. That's my conclusion. And on one level, we might say that she's right. On one, well, on one level, Luke would say she's right. But on another level, she's galaxies off base. Reasonable conclusions drawn from biblical realities are not necessarily right. Jesus doesn't agree with her conclusion. Jesus doesn't agree with her uh, in, in saying, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Not in the sense, oh, therefore your mother should be adored. Your mother should be exalted. That's very logical, but it's sub-Christian. It's patently sub-Christian because verse 28 says, but he said, blessed rather. Notice the contrast. Blessed Rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And in our context, who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. Who's the adored one? Who's the one who's to be uh, 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 capturing our attention? Where should the emphasis lie? I'll tell you, rather, contrast, you're being logical, but, you, but misdirected, not biblically informed enough. And this is what can happen when we take some Bible and we draw logical conclusions. But we actually need more Bible to have our conclusions be more logical and actually be patently right and on target. And Jesus is saying, point of contrast, rather, blesses the person who hears the Word of God and keeps it. Well, he, he's, he's talking about himself and what he's been saying about himself. Fascinating. Back to the opening question to, to, to bring things together. Should we judge Jesus? Well, yes. Well, no. Is Jesus to be judged? Well, yes. No. There's another sense that we haven't talked about. Luke's going to talk about it, but we're only looking at a small section today. That Jesus is to be judged. We have to know all of this is going somewhere. 
All of this is going to the place where Jesus won't be judged by sinners. But how about this? He will be judged as if he is a sinner. Because all of this is going to the place where he is judged by none other than his Father. As if he was a sinner. Because he's going to be judged on behalf of every sinner who would ever believe throughout history. And he's going to be judged. Though innocent, he'll be treated as if guilty. So that we can be accepted before God. And he's going to volunteer for that. He came for that purpose. And so we need to remember that. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs. This is a messianic passage, so he would embrace this as Messiah, as Christ. And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's judgment talk. And we can be thankful that Jesus is in fact, was in fact, judged. He was judged all right. Not by sinners but for sinners, by His Father. And that's why we're here today saying we're Christians because Jesus has been judged in the right sense because God loves us enough to provide a substitute. And that same Jesus has been raised from the dead. God is pleased, as Messianic prophecy would say. And so we boast in Christ, we rest in Christ, we side with Christ, we, we gather for Christ in the name of Christ. And we're not neutral, we're for Him. Because He's worthy to be for. Let's pray.